I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. Episode 33. What about me? 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 I wanted to be poetic. I wanted to be eloquent. I wanted to be succinct. I wanted to find something that encapsulated this yearning, this question that had been on my heart for the last few weeks in particular, maybe lingering in the back of my mind for the past few months, but I had been pushing against it and making room for other questions and questions that I thought were more important, more urgent. And I almost called this episode revolution as in a transformational time in which everything must change. And then I wanted to call it measure of a man And I think that that will still be the next episode that I do. But this had to come first. (laughs) And I couldn't find another way to say it. What about me? This is our fourth love edition. And I want to dedicate it to women. To women out there asking, what about me? And I know many people of all different gender experiences ask this question. But I'm talking right now to women. And it's, it's odd, right? Because it makes no sense for me to be asking this question. For me, it is particularly and exceptionally strange that I find this to be the sole question pulling and pulling and pulling at my psyche and my heart saying, Bianca, what about me? It's strange because my name is on the marquee And on the front of the pamphlet, it's on the byline. It's on the speed dial. People have urgency when they talk to me and a lot of times reverence and respect and come with gladness. But yet I've been feeling so distant and withdrawn from my days. I find myself working on certain projects, enveloped in certain relationships, committed to certain friendships in which I feel quote unquote important. And yet I find myself asking, what about me? And it's not self-deception and it's not arrogance. It's actually a real conundrum, a real obfuscation, a real problem. It's a real trick actually, how the world can center you and tell you you're beautiful and tell you you're important and tell you you're good and you're smart and you're worthy. And yet the ways that you're treated, really treated, when you get down to what growing up they call the nitty gritty of it, you find yourself dissolved, dissolved in people's expectations, dissolved in people's ideas of beauty, dissolved in people's half-ass attempts at love and everyone's trying to sell a dream and pull you in and get you to keep going and keep giving because they like what you got and that's the real issue with me my personal issue is that the world likes what i got and me needing so much validation i want to give it and i'm thinking you like what i got i want to give it i want you to like me and i want you to like what i got So I'm going to give it. And so you do that exchange. And then if you're like me, one day you wake up in a crisis saying, what about me? 
because you find out that it wasn't an exchange at all. What you gave away was yourself. And what you got, what you got is so little in exchange. It can't be gripped onto. It can't be sold. You can't even compile it. You can't even take the validation or the little that you're getting in the way of affection or small prizes and compile them into something more meaningful. And when you take people to task for the ways that they disappear you, when you finally get around to asking, by the way, what about me? What you get, if you get it at all, is sorry. And you can't buy shit with sorry. And I wanted to make this episode about so many things. I wanted to package it up neatly with a bow and give it to you for Valentine's Day because I wanted to tell you a little thing about good love. And I found something, something very ironic and funny happened to me. Maybe two weeks ago, I met one of my listeners and shout out to Iman if you're listening to this. Oh, my heart. Of all the many questions she asked me that evening, she said she had to ask me something on behalf of her boyfriend who found himself listening through the wall once at one of these episodes and asked her, how long did it take for me to script these things? Because I'm presenting very complex ideas, complicated emotional ideas, complicated theories, ideas about the world. And so she asked me, she said, how long or what is your process? And I laughed. I had a good laugh, which I really needed that day because I thought it was crazy. And never, ever, ever crossed my mind. And it was such a compliment for you all to think that I do this project with any level of composure, any level of supposed profundity or note-taking. Many times when I see your questions, when I get in front of this microphone, it's for the first time. And when I come to you, I come to you what's on my heart. And maybe you couldn't hear my voice cracking in so many of the episodes. And of course you couldn't see the tears streaming down my face. All the times life has taken me for a ride and I've done a little bit of pondering and a little bit of musing about what it could all mean. And then I come to you and I pour it out and I edit out the ums and the yas and the okays and the long pauses. I put it together and I put a bow on it and a nice title, put it out in the world. And maybe all of that portrait of perfection is dissolving because today I don't come with a large concept. I don't come with grandiose ideas. Hell, I don't even know if I came to you today in that good of a mood. And maybe so much that this is not a love edition because it's all about love. But it's a love edition because the last episode we celebrated our fourth anniversary together. And I'm coming to you because I know you love me. And I love you. And I've been going through some things. And maybe it's a love edition because at the central focal point of my love life right now is one singular question and that's what about me? And I would be so naive after all this time together and the youth that I've had to think that I was alone in that question. When I called for questions for the love edition, I saw your questions. And somehow the string between them is that question, what about me? What about me? And I'm talking to the givers. If you're a taker, if you're a selfish person, 
which I'm finding is not the worst or strangest thing in the world now. If you're someone that has trouble conceding, someone that usually gets the last word, someone that is accustomed to having more than enough and in excess of because you had fathers that fed you fruit after a long hard day at school because you had mothers that rubbed your backs and rubbed your feet and bought you pretty dresses on every birthday because all the sex you've ever had in your life has been mostly consensual and at worst awkward, at worst uncomfortable. If you're one of those people that people want to make it easy for you. One of those people whose parents did their, their model during the group project. One of those people who take your laundry home on the weekend in college for your mother to do it. One of those people that get a job and have a mentor looking after you. I'm not talking to you today and I love you. And I'm happy for the easy roads paved. And I think more women deserve them. But I'm talking about the givers today. I'm talking to people who always concede the point for the greater good, who are always worried if someone is talked over or left out in a conversation, who feel the slightest inkling of love from a partner and want to throw themselves, those people who want everybody to be seen and felt and heard, those people that mitigate and level out the turmoil of your families, who will always find the extra dollar, find the extra moment, even at the brink of exhaustion and frustration. Those people who people turn to you for the ideas and they turn to you for the words when they've lost the words. Those people that when others are tired of being sick and tired and they throw their hands up, you just encourage yourself, pat your own self on the back. Those people who have been quietly asking, who didn't have the audacity because of fear of loss to say, what about me? Well, this episode is for you. I've been learning something recently, learning it in therapy, learning about boundary setting. And it's funny, the more boundaries I seem to set, the more relationships seem to be disappearing completely. And I think that that was my fear initially, as I said, I don't wanna build walls. I don't wanna build walls because how will people reach me? And I wanted to be reached and I wanted to reach out. And so much when you're raised like I was raised when you're raised with less than enough or when you experience poverty. It's so natural when you get older to have a mindset of scarcity, to have a mindset of, oh, don't share it. It might run out. And I didn't want to be beholden to the things that I had in that way. I didn't want to feel handcuffed to money, handcuffed to talent, handcuffed to pedigree or prestige or relationships. I didn't want to make anything so sacred. I didn't want to make anything such an idol that I couldn't give it away, that I couldn't share it. And so I took down all boundaries. Oh, if you need something, call me, call me anytime. And I find that there's a time and a place for that. It's called charity and it's good and fortifying for the soul. It's necessary to obtain humility without humiliation. Charity is necessary. But there are these other relationships that are not charity, that fall into, no, instead they're defined by reciprocity and they're measured by reciprocity, measured by sacrifice. Love is always measured by sacrifice, by give and take give and take and in order to see love clearly you always have to know what's being given and you always have to assess what's being taken because so much of the end of good love is when you find 
that either you've taken more than you've given, or in so many of our cases, the ones which I'm discussing today, you've given much more than you've taken. And growing up and growing into this womanhood has been understanding that things must be taken, must be taken. And I'm starting to believe even for some of us, as a black woman in particular, as a woman of working class, poor background, that things might not just have to be taken, maybe things must be seized. And I find myself suddenly someone who had such an easy time being a microphone for the voice of another, a poster child for the cause of another, the brain of a company, the hands, the builder, my back, the bearer of so much. Some of you, the center of your families, the core of your companies, and some of you, wholly and totally the sum of good in your relationships, the singular sum of good in your relationships, bringing everything plus the table to the table, born on the sidelines, on the margins of our own stories in so many different ways, and yank ourselves violently back into the center of our worlds, even a fear of being called self-centered, selfish, and some think it's strange. And it is strange. It is strange. It's strange to violently seize your life back when for some of us, it never belonged to us in the first place. Some of us were born as pawns into other people's schemes, casualties of other people's violence. Some of you, the oldest daughter in a family full of children, made into a mother against your will, as endearing and as much as you love your siblings. Some of us born into the stories of our father's brutalities and were used to playing the sideline and the quiet ones because we watched our mothers sidelined from their own destinies. We watched sidelined from promotions, sidelined from ownership, sidelined, 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 and yet giving, 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 and maybe in the back of their mind thinking, what about me? And maybe even sometimes vocally in fits of rage and frustration, screaming, what about me? But yet took no action, made no move, found no recourse. And maybe it's because I'm thinking of them so much today. I'm thinking of so many women snuffed out and did it in the name of love. Ain't that about a... I found now I have one singular goal and it's my goal because I've never in real life ever seen it done. I want to outdo everyone in the cause of my own happiness. And I mean outdo. I don't want to leave this world having been and lived as an inspiration. And if it's a byproduct of the cause of my own happiness, thank you, God. If I find that other people found satisfaction, lovely. Do I want to continue to earn my legacy of lending my voice to others, of changing the landscape of artistry for a generation? Definitely. But the transformation lies in that the two can no longer be incompatible. And I cannot overstate to you how many times those causes 
we're so directly at odds. And maybe it's because I'm working harder than I've ever worked every single day now. And while it was easier when I simply had less to do to concede so many parts of my mind, myself, my money, to the cause of other people, to the cause of romantic love. Maybe now I'm just too tired. Maybe this will be that breaking moment that they have in all of those superhero movies. My villain origin story. And it began with a singular question. What about me? I wanna find love that is so intrinsically involved with me. Thinking of and remembering me and not just what I look like, and not just what I sound like when I'm singing a love song, but really me. Because what I look like is usually for the enjoyment of other people. I know, shocker. The presentation of self is to the benefit of the other. I'm talking about me. My thoughts, my likes and dislikes, my annoyances, my proclivities, my favorite foods, my ideal vacation destinations the flowers that I like and don't like, how I like to be spoken to when I'm in a good mood, how I like to be not spoken to when I'm in a bad mood, how I like to be served and serviced, how I like to be touched when I don't like to be touched, what my favorite body washes, perfumes, hairsprays, my shoe size, my birthday, my horoscope. I, I want it to be now about me. And maybe if I can have a few more relationships like that in my immediate life, then I won't feel so exhausted when I go out into the world and leave it all on the stage. When I burn the midnight oil, putting it all on the page, I'm gonna need my love to be about me now. And I know I won't have any issue finding a man and remembering the coil of his curl pattern and what he likes to smell like and what he likes to eat and what he thinks about life and the God that he worships. Because I do that shit naturally. So many of us do. We women are obsessive creatures. We wanna know the when, what, who, what, where, how. It's natural for us to dive into that role. We are meticulous, detail-oriented, obsessive creatures. Ask me how I know. Because in every single literary trope, every single cinematic episode. The evil woman who is always anti-woman, who is the dangerous woman, is the woman who doesn't give a fuck. That's how I know. <laughs> the natural course of action for the woman across societies, across history, across eras, genres, age groups, is giving. It's giving. And the one question that they'll let you ask quietly, but don't you dare act on it at any given point when it concerns your pleasure, when it concerns your financial health, when it concerns your mental, emotional being, when it concerns your spirit, is what about me? And I don't wanna make that conversion to villain. That would exhaust me more. I don't wanna be the ruthless trope. I think that that's a weakness and cliche too. But there has to be a middle ground between the total dissolution of self and complete and utter selfishness in which a woman can find a real course of happiness in this life. And right now, today, 
February 2022. That is the course I have decided to venture. And it starts with boundaries, real boundaries. God built boundaries to separate the shore from the ocean, built boundaries to separate the skin from the internal organ. It's about protection and preservation and endurance and real strength. You gotta have walls. And when you really decide, I mean through a process of very stringent standard keeping that someone is safe. And this is incredibly, this point, listen up. I was born into a family with a violent father. God bless my father, but my father is a violent man and he always was. And not only did this do me the disservice of growing up in the unsafety of a violent household, it did me a perhaps even more insidious disservice that I'm only recognizing the true harm of it right now in my life is that it caused me to divide every single man I pursued into two categories, violent or harmless. I decided that if a man wouldn't put his hands on me or call me out of my name, that he was effectively harmless and maybe even benign, and that it would be okay to share myself with him as long as I didn't have to worry that he would violate my physical safety. I lived in a world in which my father was the worst case scenario, and I didn't understand the way men can dissolve you, can undo you in the subtle chipping away of self-confidence self-esteem, self-knowledge, how they can turn the volume down on a voice that you know inside of yourself. And even if they don't do any of those things, how naturally they center themselves because they're taught to and exalted to and celebrated to, to the detriment of me. And it wasn't harmless. It was just a slow violence. So when you decide that someone is not just harmless and not just nonviolent, but truly safe, meaning have knowledge of themselves, meaning have respect for you and other women when they have knowledge of self and God. And I honestly, if I lose you somewhere along the way in this standards list, it's fine. Catch me on episode 35, no love lost. But these things are absolutely essential requisites, have the ability to take care of themselves, meaning have the ability to pay their own way through life, have a vocation that they are dedicated to and love, that they will not try to supersede you or minimize you or outdo you or use you. And when you do all of that, which it should take you quite a while, unless you're one of God's favorites who meets their soulmate in high school and the rest is history. God bless you all too, happy Valentine's Day. Then you can slowly, slowly let down some of the walls and give the best of yourself to that person fearlessly. But if you're like me, too many of us have not done the work necessary, have not gone through the process necessary to be letting down all of these walls. Some of us, like me, who have never built them in the first place and letting in the first thing that says I love you because we're so desperate to hear it. And when you're like that, 
You can't have a good life. Happiness is not available to you. And why should it be? I have built an extremely enviable career. Ask me if I've mirrored that in my romantic life. Just ask me. The spot that I have in my professional life, I took it. And when I took it, I mean I grabbed it by both hands and I chokeholded it and I said, this is the me show. It's going to be about me. And I did it shamelessly and fearlessly against 7,000 background voices who had rather it been someone else. Oh, but in love. Oh, but in love. How hard it's been. How hard it's been to not fear taking too much, asking for too much. When, you're, when your value system, growing up, I was taught to measure men by their money, by their aptitude. And when I unlearned it, thinking I was so much better than the women that came before me who were just trying to find a real way to survive in a society that did not employ or empower women. And so I rejected that model completely and said, no, 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 you don't need anything. Just bring character and good looks. But then you find that that character is often so fickle and so easily descended into cruelty. So then you get the rich ones, the ambitious and enterprising. And you say, okay, just protect me. Just keep me safe. Just take care of me. Give me security. But then you find that you can't say the things that are on your heart and on your mind. You don't want to sing because you don't want to sing off key. You don't want to have a hair out of place. You don't want to dress or look lazy because the reality of it is is that you sold yourself as a product to a man and you don't want him to keep the receipt or make an exchange or return so you find yourself like me 21 years old waiting up for a facetime call until 3 a.m with makeup still on and somewhere along the way you realize that they all made you feel the same that they all left you asking well what about me and the truth is i wasn't prepared for happiness living like that i wasn't prepared for the best of life. It's a sad thing to give people power and prestige who are looking for validation. It's a waste. You know why? Because when you give people who are looking for validation power, they will use it to get more validation. <laughs> it's not used on anything decent or good. And the only way to wear away this constant need for validation, to be told I love you, to be told you're beautiful, in which you will not completely dissolve yourself when you can figure out your real purpose other than as a vanity project or a body pillow for someone who's usually, if not always, supremely less than deserving. You can find out what you really got in that heart of yours, in this head of mine, in these souls of ours. And so I ask myself, how, 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 how do I make it about me? And a wise, wise woman, a wise woman, I came upon a talk of her, Sarah Jakes Roberts, a talk on boundaries, and I encourage every woman to watch it. She says, it's not how much you give, it's about how much you keep. And I think this might be one of the most revolutionary things I have ever heard. Because for me, I was always trying to build the wall to stop giving. I'm naturally a giver. I said that at the beginning, I wanna give. I like it when people receive things from me. It makes me feel affirmed in my identity as a giver. It's, it really is who I am. She said, it's not what you give, it's what you keep. She said, so all of the love that you're giving 
keep a little bit more love for yourself. When you've been given so much love to people who have proven to do the same thing, the same thing, who will react to it the same way, who will give the same half-ass hearted response every time, keep a little of it next time. Just keep it, just keep it. When you're known to give time to people who always show up day late, dollar short, to people who seem oblivious to your condition, to your exhaustion, time to people who do not seem to think that it is precious, keep it. Just keep the time. Say, Ashley, no, I can't today. I don't want to, I'm good. And the more that you keep the way that this system works, the more that you find yourself actually giving it to yourself. And suddenly you wake up one day replenished and stronger and more loving towards self. And that's what's beautiful about this idea of if it's not what you give, it's what you keep, is that it's actually a secret mechanism to obtaining self-love. And it makes you really, really aware of the truly draining and selfish people around you because you find when you begin to yank yourself back into the center, it's like a game of tug of war where others seem to yank back. And you'll know you're in the presence of love, real love, when people respond to that yanking with understanding, with concern, with listening. Those people who write it off don't care. Those people who yank it back are selfish. <laughs> and we begin to create a system in which we can truly evaluate the value of our relationships. And we can truly say upon this analysis and assessment, I am loved by somebody. I am loved by myself because I have kept so much goodness in life for myself. And I am loved by others who have given as much as they have taken from me. And I will fill my life with this kind of love, with these kinds of love. So at the end of it, as abrupt and the laughingly short as this life is, it will be the real substance of my legacy so that I won't just have the trophies on the shelf, the accolades and the accomplishments. I won't just have the bestsellers, won't just have the films, the TV shows, the real estate, I'll have really loved. And I won't have this question to look at all those things, those wonderful things and accomplishments that I've seen, the places in the world I've gone. It will truly be equal that I won't have to ask, what about me? What about me? Now let's get into these questions because I know that's your favorite part. Dear Viv, I wanted to know, how do you know when it's true love and if it's the right love for you? One of the definitions of love that I have come to appreciate the most, I read in a book that everyone should read called In Praise of Love by the French philosopher Alain Badiou, B-A-D-I-O-U. And Badiou says in the book that you know that you're in love when two perspectives of difference are unified into one new perspective. And I think that I've become to, I've come to appreciate that definition of love the most because it's what distinguishes love from so many other kinds of things that look like love. Appreciation, admiration, obsession, passion, those things are qualities of goodness or lovingness 
or fixation towards something. But the difference is I can appreciate you and I can still remain standing opposite from you, separate from you, far away from you. I can admire you and stand separate from you, distant from you, far away from you. Love demands this coming together. It insists upon it to really be love. And there are so many times in my young life in romance where I believed I love someone. But the truth is I really wasn't trying to see things their way. And I wanted to invite them into a worldview, into a life, into a lifestyle, into a set of beliefs that I had. And I wanted them to appreciate those things and admire those things and make room for those things. But I didn't want, for whatever reason, sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's arrogance, sometimes it's selfishness, sometimes it's just laziness and want of pure enjoyment with no sacrifice, that I didn't want to do the work where two things become one. And that's why in so many religions, this idea and the institution of marriage, it differs from being not married in that you forego your private loneliness and you forego this notion of separateness and concede it to become one. And that's a very scary, and a very dangerous thing because selfhood, especially in Western society, is what we value the most. And individualism is what we value the most. So imagine saying, I'm going to love you and deciding to forego that vision of self for someone else and not to replace that vision of self with someone else because that's dominion and that's domination and that's an evil thing but to create a completely new oneness. And that's why love is one of the singular, truly creative acts that we have in this life. It's one of those things that truly mirrors the act of God because it is one of the only ways that humans have to create truly original work is by loving another. Because when you unify that perspective with someone else, when you find a way to unify goals to unify needs to bind up your survival or your becoming with someone else that's true true love that's true love in community that's true love in family that's true love in romance and you know that you've severed or ended love or you that love cannot persist or go on when you've decided upon difference when you say i can't see it your way anymore or i can't come together with you on this now your second question which is a critical and separate question is when do you know it is right for you because you can be very willing to come together in that oneness very willing to create that un level of understanding that we call intimacy with a person or persons or a community or group. The reason that the West, in particular, the notions of love that exist in Western society is so deeply toxic is because of one singular word that I heard from the time I was a child that distorted all conceptions and notions of true love and led me into love in a dangerous and very toxic fashion. And that word is unconditional. I don't know 
what this notion of unconditional love is, why women in particular have been beat over the head with this notion of unconditional, unconditional, unconditional love our whole lives. But that coming together, that sense of oneness, that level of intimacy, ironically, and to the contrary of this idea of unconditional love, is completely defined by sacrifice. I mean, it is 100% and totally defined by sacrifice because humans are deeply needy creatures. We need so much. In the words of Bishop Noel Jones, we're gluttons for affection. We are so needy, we're so lacking all the time that if you're going to enter into that sacred spiritual contract of love with someone, you better have something to offer them in the way of life building. You better have something to offer them in the way of better. You need to be able to say, through my sacrifice, I have bettered this person's life. The issue is that we are so gung-ho, especially in romance, when we go through what many call the honeymoon stages or the stages of, of infatuation where you have a very light and pseudo version of that oneness. Sometimes it comes through deep, deep passion where you just have really great sex. Sometimes it comes through deep admiration or you enter into a creative space together. Sometimes it comes from lovely conversation or really feeling understood by someone that we said, oh, I'm in love. But when it comes time, as our grandmothers would say, when the rent is due and we realize that there's so much lacking in what we can truly offer a person in the way of that journey, it cannot be right. And I think that this is a critical time for me to set the record straight on the lie that I had been told. And in many ways, as usual, I'll have to blame the Christians because the notion of unconditional love comes from this idea that God is a man. The relationship that we have with God, in which God is, is the only being that is able to love us unconditionally because he is the only entity without need. We cannot give God really anything that he needs. The Quran says if you praise him, it's to your own benefit, not to his. If you pray, it's to your own benefit, not to his. If you give to charity, it's for the good of your own soul, not for his, because God is a boundless, timeless, and complete and whole entity without need. Then when you create God in the image of man and worship a man who then you say has unconditional love and the intent of Christianity is to make people Christ-like or pursue Christ-like love, you get people bound to a philosophy of love that is sculpted by this idea that unconditional love for man is possible. And it's not, it's not. Mercy is possible for man. Tolerance is possible for man patience, courage, these things that sort of skirt the line of unconditionality because they give a lot of grace are definitely 
what we should pursue in the way of the perfection of love, but are they possible to that grand extent that I can give everything in exchange for nothing, which is obviously once again an allegory for Jesus the Christ. No, we can't. We can't, but even more now so, I'm taking it a step further beyond philosophy to say, as a woman, my young ass life who's given so much trying to fulfill that task unbeknownst to myself of its origins or why I was so hell-bent on doing it for so long I'm here to also say we shouldn't so to come full circle to answer your question how do you know it's right it's when you can look at a set of needs and desires needs meaning absolutely must have and desires, meaning tied up with your bliss and personal sense of goodness and wellness, and measure those against what you are getting in your relationships, then call it true love. I have had people that kept saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, but did not for one second really stop to think, what can I offer this woman? Because had they thought, I can't fulfill these needs. I can't be a provider. I don't have it. I can't be a protector. I don't know how. I can't be a guiding light. I'm lost myself. I can't be a listening ear. I haven't learned that skill. And yet still kept saying, I love you, I love you. And me being me, y'all know me, I was always articulating my needs. I need this, 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 and this. So many times over different lovers wanting to enter into that space to say, I wanna be yours, I want you to be mine. Let's be in a place of oneness. Let's be in love, let's get married, let's have kids. Couldn't for one second just say, you know what? I really can't meet any of your needs. So let's forget even thinking about what you really desire. Let's forget about bliss and luxury or land and space and time or wanting a man that was truly spiritually fortified, let's just be in love. Well, the love dissipated so quickly after that stage of infatuation and curiosity about the way that things could be, because the minute that I found out the way that things truly were, I knew it was not going to work because I said, you can't love me well. You can't love me well. And if we are loving without a true idea of what it means to meet someone's needs, at best we are loving poorly. We have a natural affection. Thank God we have it. We have a tendency towards people. We have an inclination. We love beautiful things. We love kind things and things that make us feel soft and tender in this hard-hearted and terrifying life that we lead. From a child, a child has natural affection towards a mother because provision gives us that, safety gives us that. But then when you compound so many needs that seem ever increasing over the course of one's life, you can even look back and realize you didn't have a good childhood. And that's because while you had the food on the table sometimes, when you had the home sometimes, without being given emotional safety and spiritual fulfillment and creative space and encouragement and truly being fortified by another person, you begin to realize, I don't think I was loved. I don't think someone ever really cared to welcome me into a family, to say you are a part of this thing. 
and we need you to survive. And when that happens to us as children, we go out just taking what we can get in the way of love. And if it feels good, then it feels true, but it's untrue and it's not right because I'm not getting what I need. I have a poem called The Other Woman and, and a line in it, I say, you washed up, walked out, leaving me regular and unspecial to return to a world where you played God over another woman. This may be the only kind thing a man has ever done for me. And I, in that poem, it was about somebody that I was seeing that very clearly told me at the climax of the story, I cannot be what you need. I do not have what you need. And I say in that poem, which I wrote when I was 22, this might be the only kind thing a man has ever done for me because just the sheer honesty of I can't and the courage of I won't is somehow in many ways one of the grander indications of love I've received in this life. One of the bolder and realer ones. I felt it more deeply and more sincerely than 7,000 declarations I had had prior and after of men who said, I love you, I love you, I love you, couldn't be who I needed them to be and yet remained, remained until that lack and the gap between who they were and what I needed created so much misunderstanding, so much vitriol, so much bitterness, and so much disappointment. And that was before I had conjured up enough love and knowledge of self to open my own eyes widely and hug myself tightly and say, leave. I didn't feel crazy when I fell in love with a man who couldn't give me what I needed, not in the way of security, not in the way of protection, not in the way of spiritual, spiritual strengthening. I didn't feel myself a fool because I stayed up until I began to see that the dream and the vision that, that the initial love created, the sense that maybe two things could be one, that I could place myself wholly inside of this situation and it would be to the betterment of myself as a woman and as a lover. And as soon as that vision began to coincide and coalesce against reality, and I realized that I was going to lose myself in this relationship, I took myself out of it, maybe more casually than I ever have in my life. I'll never forget the words. I looked him in the eyes. I said, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. And I think that something in me is so proud of myself because it took so much to get to that point where instead of sitting there in the fetal position and begging the question, what about me? What about me? I could see very clearly it's not here. It's not what I thought it was. This is not the right place. I gotta keep it moving. It's taken many moons to get to that place. There is so much true love around us. I find so much true love and friendship. I have friends who are hell bent on seeing it my way, even if they have to tilt their head sideways. And I'm blessed for that. I have a family where after so 
many eons and so many eras of misunderstanding, there are some things that we can finally really see eye to eye. And I have the love of God, which never falters, not for one singular moment in this lifetime or the next 10. So I'm blessed, but that romantic love will get you. It'll get you. And I think that all things are not equal in the end. And that sometimes the worst thing is realizing that I truly was better off by myself that what I learned about boundaries, that it's not about what you give, it's about what you keep, that the right thing and the true thing would have been to keep a little bit more of that love to myself. Dear Viv, my ex and I have broken up a little over a year now. I broke up with him for my sanity because he was a narcissist. After being with him, I began to pick up some of his narcissistic traits, such as ignoring his calls and text messages. In a way, I felt we were emotionally abusive towards one another. But I still think about him every day, and as much as I try to forget him, he appears in my dreams. Do you believe we have soul ties? I believe people have memories, and memories are strong. I feel the power of a memory is so underestimated, particularly when memories become part of, as I've described in many episodes, these grand cinematic narratives we have about life. And we play them over and over and over again, seeking resolution. And the people that are in these movies, they play their role. They play their roles and we see them often and they live in our conscious and subconscious. But I find one thing that I've learned about the lovers that we really can't seem to let go of. And we can know that they're bad for us. And we can know that we are bad for them. And yet they linger with us and they stay within us long after we've cut ties in reality because they are such a mirror of something in ourselves that our soul seeks to see clearly and to resolve. There are relationships I had, particularly in my early 20s, one I had when I was about 20 to 21 and a half, I don't remember 90% of it. I don't remember how we spent our days when we lived together in the summertime. I don't remember what we did for fun. I don't remember what we did for fun. I don't remember what we talked about before we went to sleep. I don't remember our first or last dates. And I think that that was just a youthful relationship. And it was about spending time and it was about enjoyment and company. And then it was about letting go. And that was the lesson. It was just a life lesson about life, about living. Then I have a lover, had a lover I couldn't forget. And it wasn't a breakup, it was a haunting. Because instead of leaving and forgetting, and this wasn't just because he did me wronger than anybody I don't know if the harm he did me will ever be outdone. I I don't think so. I think that that kind of haunting stays. And the thing about a so-called narcissist or somebody that's manipulative or somebody that's cunning or deceptive, duplicitous, two-faced, I mean, really get into it, is mind games 
can put themselves on autopilot long after someone leaves. And you can continue to mar over the words that they've said and the feelings that they implanted in you, they linger. A lot of times because the dreamscape of our most passionate lovers, the dreamscape that they create, which is often completely separate from the actual reality that they're presenting, mind you, but the dreamscape that they create is one that we desire to remain in. And even though we tell our self-conscious, get up, go to the gym, move on with your life, go to therapy, something in our soul loves the dream, loves the dream long after the lover is gone. And that was the case for me. But I think it was also that this person, the reason why he was able to bring so much harm and destruction was because I wanted to be like him. He presented an image of success an image of beauty, an image of togetherness, an image of family that I thought I desired to have and possess when we were together. But over the years, I realized I just desired it for myself. And I wanted him to be the gateway and the access to the easy way. Because so often ambitious and successful women we believe ambitious and successful men are a shortcut to who we're trying to be. And for some women, they take that shortcut to where they take it. I won't say that it works because I found it doesn't work, but that route is allowed for them and they go and they live life and they find out what they find out. Well, that route was closed to me pretty quickly and he disappeared and we fell apart to say the least. I continue to see him because the desire that he came to embody. And, and this is the thing about hatred, about bitterness, about the end of love, is that we try in our minds to grind somebody down into nothing. We want to make them insignificant in our story. We want to have it mean nothing. And we want to suppress the memories, but that hatred almost always does the opposite in that it turns men into idols. And worse than just having to deal with the reality of the person that he brought me, I had to deal with the symbol that he became, a symbol of the worst kinds of success, a symbol of the worst kinds of mind games and power play, of what beauty could do and wealth could do, how manipulative it could be, how unkind and how ruthless. And so now when I see him in my dreams, it's not so much about him because he wasn't that interesting and he wasn't that intelligent. And I mean this very honestly, and I'd be willing if any of you ever met him to let you judge for yourselves if we were truly equals, but it was about a dark side of me. And it was the dark side of me that needed him so badly, needed that shortcut so badly, needed that way out so badly. And it was the things that I couldn't see in myself, the kind of wealth he had, the kind of ease with which life came to him, things that I wanted for myself, the way I perceived his life that became an ideal, that became an idol. And the more that I really began to confront that it wasn't so much about him, but the reason I chose him and the reasons I held on to him and our memories were so much about me that the more that I started to deconstruct that mirror image that he provided, the more I started to begin to scratch away at that reflection, the more 
I let the nightmare go. It's been a while since you showed up in my dreams. It had been a year, even two years. And I think that anybody will tell you as you get older and the years begin to mount that a year is not that long of a time. In retrospect, a year is very quick. To build a business, a year is very quick. When we assess life's grand schemes and projects, when a child turns three and then turns four, it's very quick. So I don't know why we expect to end very impactful relationships, end very, very deep love affairs. And then in a year you wake up and think, oh, I'm fine. No, it took me one year past, two year past, calendar pages flipped and flipped. And finally, I didn't think of him too much anymore. And as far as if we have soul ties, I don't know when you ask me that, and forgive me if I've misunderstood you, but I think that when people ask me things like that, they're looking for an excuse to reopen that door one day. And they want me to say, it's okay. You all are bound by fate in and out of time. Open the door. But I'm reminded of a quote that I love, unfortunately from an author that I can't name right now, They don't immediately come to mind. But the quote says, though I think of you fondly from time to time, I would cut off my hand before I ever reach for you again. And that's what I think about a soul tie. (laughs) Dear Viv, have you ever felt like you're the problem or to blame for something ending or for someone else's pain? How do you process that and forgive yourself for it? We both hurt each other, but now that the smoke is clearing, I feel I'm mostly blaming myself. I once had a dear, dear friend, someone I used to kick it with back in my early New York days in Crown Heights. And this friend, he was into some pretty shady stuff, to say the least. And he wronged me very, very deeply, and not in a romantic sense. This was on some street shit. (laughs) Something happened and it all went very, very wrong. And I found out years later, It all went so wrong because at the time, unbeknownst to me, he was addicted to heroin. Years after this happened, this was 2017, he calls me up at the end of 2021 and he's moved to a completely different state. He's living a quiet life. He's gotten cleaner than clean. He's found new hobbies and a stable job and is dating healthy women. He's being a good person. And he calls me just to chat. And after all of this, being that he's one of my true loves in life, we're laughing, sort of reminiscing on the past, how just crazy the city was in that year, how crazy the energy was and the youthfulness of it all and the foolishness, I mean, carte blanche foolishness on both of our parts. And you know, he starts to get into the the sentimental part of the conversation. He says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, B, I'm so sorry. I said, oh, I forgave you for that so long ago. I'm just so glad that you're healthy, that you're alive, that you're here, that we can talk like this now so freely. And he says, no, no, but I, I have to say, I never got away with anything. He said, I never got away with anything. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I have to say sorry because I don't want you in your mind to think that I wronged you. And then I went about my way getting over and getting over again. He said, I I never paid you back, but I paid for everything. I paid for everything. And there was this crack in his voice, this humiliation and this sadness. And I said, I understand. I understand. 
another story not too long ago i mean extremely recent 8 30 a.m 8 30 in the morning and i'm fixing my orange juice and awakening myself to the day before my first meetings and i get this ominous text message and it says i wish i could do what you do and i said what does that mean no good morning no nothing i said what does that mean what do i do and they said for real i do i said do what this person says be heartless <laughs> and i rolled my eyes and mind you this is one of the very few men on earth that can justifiably say that i wronged them in love i mean really wronged them straight up played them and i apologized for it when we came back together after a year or so and i said i'm sorry that was not my best moment. I make no excuses. That was out of character and that was wrong. And to honor our friendship, I should have been better to you. But this was months later now that I'm getting this message after that reconciliation. And you know, he wanted to stand on his soapbox, yada, 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 and say, well, I hope I could be like you and just use people for my enjoyment and then discard them with no promise of commitment or blah, la 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 la. And you know what I said? I said, do you remember those old cartoons? I even sent him a photo. Those old cartoons from the 50s and 60s where a woman would get tied to a train track by a villain and they would wait and half the plot of the episode was them waiting for the main cartoon character of the show to come save them. I said, well, I've been the woman on that track 10,000 times. And I can count on one hand the amount of times that someone showed up to save me. I said, so forgive me if one day I said fuck it and became the train conductor. And I always say, do no harm. Do no harm, I mean, really try. Try your best not to be the person tying someone up to those train tracks. But at some point, I decided that I was going somewhere and that it didn't matter who was down there because I was tired of being that cartoon woman tied to the fucking tracks and doing all the mental gymnastics and the damage of trying to untether myself to circumstances before I got the worst kind of fate. Pregnant by a man that does not love me or want me. Married in a loveless marriage. I mean, fates that women face every single day. But the thing that, that that guy didn't know in saying that, calling me heartless and what I wanted to tell him, but I don't even know if he's really in the deep enough end of the pool to truly understand, was the words of my friend. I wanted to say, listen, I never got away with anything. I never got away with anything. And I think that the reason why when my friend said that to me, it was so kind and so wise and I needed to hear it so much is because sometimes when people wrong us, we do imagine them getting up, making a cup of coffee, putting on their nicest outfits, going out into the world, walking with their head held high, opening up a wallet that always has money in it, getting into a car where the tank is always over half full and going somewhere to do it again to someone else who is better looking and more sure of themselves than we were. And that's when life really feels cruel, right? But when he said that, it opened up my mind to so many people that had wronged me. It was as if 
His voice was a reverb, was a microphone to so many men. And mind you, he's the one that I never had any kind of romantic tie to. But it was like every nigga called me up and said, I didn't get away with anything. It was such a gift. And so when I ask you to forgive yourself, I'm not asking you to be cavalier about your actions. You know, accountability is my number one thing. I say, take accountability for your actions and own the consequences and take it to the chin. But when we beat ourselves up over the choices that we make, most of the time, not maliciously, this is not waiting to exhale. Many of us never go key a car. We never go cut up clothes. We never go beat up the other woman. Many of us, the harm that we do is so even unbeknownst to us in the moment. It's the chipping away. It's the small insults. It's the pettiness. It's the desire to have the upper hand. It's whatever, whatever. And afterward, when we think back and we think, oh, well, he was such a good guy. <laughs> and we hurt ourselves and constrain our character and distort ourselves into villains. But I wonder, I truly wonder, I've never met a woman, assuming you're a woman, I've never met a woman in my life that got away with anything anything. Sometimes I feel like women are cosmically bound to pay for things before we do them and afterwards 10 times over. And we really like this villain narrative with women. We love the Cardi B's. We love the prostitutes who stole a man's money while they were sleeping. We love the, the cat women of the world, the sneaky conniving ones. We want, we love women to be thieves. We love the city girls. You know why we love them? We love stories of women getting over and getting theirs because it's a fiction. It's a fiction. We don't get away with anything. I told this guy when he said that about me being heartless, I said, I'm sorry. And sorry is all I'm ever going to be. One singular sorry. The sorry that had the acknowledgement, that had the desire for repair, that had the remission and the repentance. I said, I'm sorry, but I don't feel sorry for you. I don't feel bad for you. I said, you want now what access to enjoy me? You want an eye for an eye? You want to lay up with me and not call back for a year? What'll make it feel even? I said, you want me to tell you in detail what I did for the last 372 days? I'll let you know the score is settled. Give yourself some grace. It's difficult to overstate how much the world is not going to give you any. And if you're a woman, forget about it. If you're black, forget about it. <laughs> This world will give you so little room in the way of forgiveness. Be on your own side relentlessly and settle the score of accountability within yourself. Character development within yourself to the betterment of yourself. Ask for mercy from a very forgiving God and do what you have to do for yourself. Because walking around with 7,000 unsent apologies is a hard and boring and terrible way to live, I can tell you. I sleep well at night because I didn't get away with anything. Dear Viv, I love you. I love you too. My question is, how do I stop looking to be in a relationship with most guys I meet? I'm trying to learn to love myself, but I feel like automatically that's where my mind goes, as if I do not know how to tell my platonic and romantic feelings apart. I'm a late bloomer, and personally, I try to think never being shown any interest in high school has affected this. 
Now I'm here and I don't even know if I want to be in a relationship or if it's just because we live in a culture that is about hooking up and non-commitment. There are many questions here, so let's try to get through all of them. First, how do I stop looking to be in a relationship with most guys I meet? I know so many women, so many women that have issues with serial monogamy. I have been surrounded by women who they've spent more of their lives in a relationship, not marriages, but in a relationship than out of a relationship. I find that this is rooted in two things, and these are observational, father issues, serious father issues. We really like to avoid the daddy issues trope because it's become such a cliche and it's a biting and cruel one. We don't like to emphasize it, but the fear of insecurity that is tied to not having a man present leads us to want a boyfriend, a partner very, very badly to fill in for that provider, protector, familial head figure that we did not have in the household. And worse yet, a lot of times the younger we are, less qualifications we have for that figure. We just want a man that'll show up every day. But when I tell you the amount of men that will show up every single day in your comfy ass bed, eating your food in your fridge, and we'll just call it present. We want presents. Then some of us, we get older and we say, okay, I figured it out. There are so many people willing to be present. Then we want a provider. Oh, just give me a little something, something. I want my nails done. I want my hair done. Go half on my rent, provide. We get the presents, we get the provision, and we don't realize there are so many things that constitute need. And we don't even stop long enough between those eras to figure out what they are. And in the meantime, this hookup culture, this non-committal culture you're talking about, we just want a little bit of love in the meantime. Well, there's one way to cure that, and I'll tell you, it's called discipline. I was very blessed to move to New York at 17 and, and live completely by myself because the quickness with which you will discern how few times it is worth it to have sex with a total and complete stranger for the sake of getting off. It is such a small percentage of times that you learn to just not do it. The slightest bit of real discipline, of understanding the compromising in your mental health, in your sexual health, in your safety, will have you foregoing this so-called hookup culture. But mind you, I've always been more of a straight edge. I think it's because unlike many women, I perceive myself as someone that has a lot to lose. And for me, it was never about just giving up my body for a small moment of time, but so many other things that I was putting on the line to have someone be able to say they could associate with me. I said, I don't want any part of it. And I think that is one thing that keeps me from being serially monogamous, that keeps me from engaging in hookup culture is that I truly have something to lose. I actually feel like every person does, but when we perceive ourselves as people that have everything to gain and nothing to lose by the way of a little bit of attention, a little bit of passion, a little bit of compassion, when you really stop to think, what do I have? 
A question that I hear that I hate often nowadays is, oh, this is what I bring to the table. This is what I bring to the table. And it's always about offering something at this metaphorical table in which everyone's supposed to come and consume you. And it makes sense that this has become a pervasive notion in a society that encourages people to parade themselves and consume themselves and sell themselves. I like to think of it more generally as what do I have, period. What am I holding on to? I don't want to give up everything that I have because I lose something. It's very basic math. Two minus one equals one. It's that basic for me. What keeps me from engaging in things that are going to take something from me because sometimes you get them back a lot of times you don't get them back and to recover some of the things that we so easily give away takes so much in the way of time time that could be spent getting something more to keep i know that this is all very high level i'm going to try to ground it it's tied up to our security issues our relationships with our fathers I'd say seven times out of 10. It's very, very rare that I meet a woman that has a good dad who has loved and cherished and protected her and been present and been good, which is already such a rare thing. I mean, let's be totally and completely honest. It's very rare that I also see those women seeking out serial monogamy. I find it completely unironic that now that I am more of a provider, now that I am more of a father figure, than the one that I grew up with and that I pay my bills and other people's bills, that I am readily available, that I am very, very protective over the people that I love and that I am a source of security for many people in my life. I don't seek out serial monogamy at all because the thing that I was looking for so badly, dating much older men when I was younger, which was great and fun, by the way, I really don't knock it. I don't need it so much anymore. And a partner has to have so much to offer me in exchange for my lovely and wonderful solitude. You would have to drag me by my hair into another relationship if it was not going to give me absolutely every single thing I wanted in that I was completely over the moon. And that brings me to another point that I learned very recently in my life is that in relationships, you should have most of your needs met. And I never forgot when my therapist told me that for the first time. She says, Bianca, no relationship is going to meet all of your needs and you venture very quickly into codependency if you think that it will, but every relationship that you have should meet most of your needs because that is the purpose of engaging in relationships in the first place. And it makes sense. If you go into a store and you're looking to buy something, and they don't have what you need, then you leave. If you go into a store and they have what you need, but it costs too much, you go find it somewhere else. It's not a crazy concept, but for women, for myself, it was crazy when presented to me because I was so okay with getting a bit in the way of what I desired, that I took my needs off the table so completely that to be honest, for a long time, I wasn't even aware of them. And then I was so conditioned by a society that tells women not to need anything that it's not okay to need a man with money. I was so down bad. I thought it wasn't important as an adult, a full adult to be dating grown men who not only could not 
quote unquote, take care of me, they couldn't take care of themselves, could not fully function on their own. And I didn't want to be perceived because of the way that black culture has sort of mapped itself out in the last hundred years as a woman that wanted a man for their money, that financial security was completely off the table. Never mind you that I'm heading to the bank to have a conversation about a mortgage. Never mind you that I'm financing a renovation for a home. Never mind you that I have CDs and stocks and crypto and security. Never mind you that I'm fronting the cash for four or five vacations a year to luxury destinations on my own. I'm not even requiring that a man have a grocery budget. And I'm better for this? You have to know what you need and you have to not talk yourself out of your needs by saying they're unreasonable, by measuring them up against one, a societal notion of what a woman's supposed to want is supposed to need, two, a vision of what you weren't getting as a child or a teenager in the way of affection or admiration or appreciation. Let me tell you something, as someone that was desired plenty in high school, it's fucking terrible. You think that you missed out? Let me open your eyes. The only people I truly envied when I was 18 years old is when I met the most beautiful girls that I went to college with. And they were in such protective families that they were both virgins and that they were really exploring romance for the first time. I mean, the second that we got to college, they had no clue how to talk to men. I envied them a lot when I was 18. Do you think that the people that desire you at 15, 16 and 17 years old have this crazy penchant to do right by you as well? Empower me, uplift me, love me? No, they just wanted to enjoy me. I actually get a lot of questions from you all saying, I was a late bloomer, I was a late bloomer. No, you were a child that was blessed to be able to be a child. Not all of us were allotted such a space or privilege or protection. And I was not some gorgeous, long flowing hair, beautiful teenager. I was just cute enough to be used and I was just neglected enough to be completely unprotected. And when you can let go of this fantasy of being wanted and desired as a high school cheerleader, there are countless girls in therapy right now trying to work out what desirability actually means, what sex actually means, what it means to be loved, what intimacy means because they were deflowered so early on in their lives. So when you can let go of your security issues with a parent that so many of us have, when you can let go of the vision of what youth should have been like when you didn't feel beautiful, when you can really discern what one needs, what is a need in a relationship, and if the person standing before you can truly offer you those things, if you can do all three of those things, it will take you a very long while to get into a relationship, let me tell you. Because even the first takes several, several months at least. Several months of counseling and therapy, several months of looking back at your family, just decluttering your memories and your mind of the kind of household you grew up in. The second one takes at least two years on its own, I can tell you from experience. And that's if you're not going to fight the process. If you all were doing a real percentage of the work that we're claiming to be doing, that this emotional romantic labor really takes, it would be very difficult to just end up in a relationship unless, unless you're looking for a way out of the work altogether. And believe me, I've done it. And it's not a crime.
It's not a crime. I wanted comfort above all at a time in my life that I entered into a relationship that I knew wasn't going to be everything I needed it to be. But I just wanted a little comfort. I wanted a little breathing room. And I don't regret it for a second. It was lovely and I got exactly what I wanted. But I'm not fooling myself about what it was. And if sometimes life overwhelms you and the wave goes over your head and you began to feel like, I wanna step out of this. I want to sidestep the process I don't want the burden of becoming who I have to be. And you take your exit through the gift shop into a relationship with the first person offering you whatever it is in the way of comfort, security, and admiration. Then do it because so many of us do. But don't fool yourself. And take accountability when it ends as it always ends. And don't be so quick to cry over what you lost when you open both eyes, stuck out both hands, and negotiated between staying and leaving, staying and leaving, staying and leaving, as I did too. One thing I will not do looking back at the moments and times I did that in life, I will not go back and talk about what people owed me. I don't fool myself, and so I won't ask you to not do that. We need a little loving in this life. It's so short and grim. We'll take a few one night stands. We'll negotiate a few toxic lovers, but don't fool yourself. And as far as how you can tell a platonic from, from a romantic relationship, I mean, this is going to sound very reductive, but the difference between a platonic and a romantic relationship is desire, sexual desire. I underestimated the importance of sexual desire so much because I had relationships with men that I stayed way past due time because of passion that trying to live on the opposite spectrum in relationships after. I said, oh, okay, I'm not attracted to this person. I feel reluctant when they touch me or the sex is not good, but I'm going to stay because they give me comfort or they are a sure thing or I'm not going to have to risk anything with this person. It, it's okay, those are called friends. Those are called friends. Does that mean that you have to be romantic with every person you're attracted to? Not by a long shot but you should physically desire your partner. And I'm not saying you need to be with someone that's attractive. You need to be with someone though that is attractive to you. It's not really optional. And to answer your final question, your part five of this question, how do I know if I really want to be in a relationship? I want everybody to hone their intuition because one thing I've found, one thing I've really found to be true with so many things in romance is the body knows. The body always tells you it's time to stay. It's time to go. We're safe here. We're unsafe here. Lean into this. Stay away from this. The body knows. The body knows. And the more that you hone your intuition, the less questions like this will even cross your mind. I knew in my last relationship it was time to break up simply because I had this stiffness in my body whenever I would get around this person. I didn't naturally unfold. I didn't open up my arms wide or fall into them. I felt closed off physically and suddenly it emanated in every other part of the relationship. And it was something deep inside me moving through my body that knew it's time to walk away. 
You will know if you really need to be in a full-blown relationship with someone. And when the body knows and it tells the mind and the mind confirms this is what will better our life, go for it wholeheartedly and unreservedly. But the way that you and I in the past ask 7,000 questions, if you have to do like those old early 2000s rom-coms and write a T chart and put pros and cons on both sides, just walk away. Just walk away. I'm afraid when the world gets this bad, when the geopolitical situation gets this bad, when a pandemic comes, when a recession comes, when inflation comes, when war comes, I get afraid for women because it becomes so easy to justify these half-assed relationships in which we age quickly alongside. I'm going to challenge you and it might be the hardest thing you ever hear. I'm going to challenge you to build a life that you really, really want. I mean, that you yourself would envy. And I mean, fight for that life. Everything it takes to get it, the work of it, the exhaustion that it demands of you. I want you to outwork everybody in the cause of your own happiness until you're standing in a home that you say, I can't believe this is mine. Until you're looking in a mirror and saying, I can't believe I look like that. Until you're in a room full of people that when you walk in, they light up, surrounded by appreciation, enveloped in encouragement, working on something you really believe in and demanding the compensation that accompanies that. And forgive me, go for a life that puts your mother's life, your grandmother's life, your favorite singer and author and pop star to shame. Young women, the time that you have. Older women, the time that you have left. I mean, every single day, hold fast to a life. And if you build that kind of life, I mean, one you love so much that you would be reluctant to die when it's finally time. You'd say, just a few more minutes. If you get a life like that, sleeping soundly in a bed at night, with a life like that, you would be so reluctant and so remiss and so vigilant over it to give it away would feel like a crime because I've seen and I've met good men. I'm not talking about men who are just not aggressively harmful as so many of them can be. I'm not even just talking about nice guys. I'm talking about holistic, spiritually fortified, strong, gracious, generous, patient men who would give all that they had in the way of seeing a woman happy and whole. But I haven't yet met one man in my life of all of the people that I've met and I meet every day that could give any woman that. And if it can't be given by a partner, if it can't be gifted by a lover, if it's not a consolation prize for the years that you spend depressed and anxious and insecure and angry asking, but what about me? If it can't be willed as an inheritance from our mothers and their mothers who were broken by life, 
It means there's only one way to get it and that's through warring. You have to take it every single day. You get it through warring ruthlessly. I know that there was that era everyone said, oh, I'm a woman and I don't want to be hard hearted. I don't want to be aggressive. I want to learn to be tender in this life. I want to learn to be soft. Good luck, good luck. I used to think in my young mind, the days that I felt most invisible, so much like an afterthought, longing for some real understanding. I said, one day I'm gonna get my dreams and everyone is going to be so concerned about my happiness. But now I sit at the center of most of the rooms that I'm in, at the head of the table. People stand up when I enter. I get 50 phone calls a day looking for me. And it didn't make me feel more seen. I'm learning now it's a waste of breath and a waste of time to ask others constantly and unceasingly, what about me? And life so fleeting quickly disappears and dissipates. And when you become a mother, it becomes laughable, that question, a wife, a second thought, a worker, forget about it. I've given up the question, what about me? I got off that train track somewhere along the way in all my anger. I won't wait for it to come to that anymore. Take what's owed to me and then some. I give to myself in excess of what even some might say is deserved. I sleep when I'm tired and I make no excuses for it. I call out sick when I'm sick of it. And when I'm met with the prospect of a love that does not meet my high, high standard, I say, wrap it up. And when everyone looks so baffled, so quizzical at the nonchalance with which I handle other people's urgencies and perspectives about what I should be doing with my time, with my body, with my life, and with my love and with the audacity after the pain I faced and the humiliation that life has brought me and the debts that I overpaid for and the sorries that I carried on my back for decades have the audacity to ask me why? How could you? What about us? I say it's about me because it's about me. It's about me, that's why. It's about me. Me, me, it's about me. It's about me this time. Walking away from jobs I'm not compensated adequately for, it's about me. Walking away from decent love but the sex is trash, it's about me. Getting dressed up for a lovely date at a three-star Michelin restaurant, going, eating, enjoying, dining, whining, drinking, plus dessert, go home, never call back, why? It's about me now. It's about me. I can't let it slip away. So it's about me. The question, what about me? I asked it for years, silently, then screamingly, deafeningly loud, it was answered with nothing. That's how this story ends. I don't even know how to be climactic about it. Nobody cared. The malicious took ad infinitum. The more benign they gave, but not enough. This is where the story ends up. It's about me. It's time for you to let it be about you. Selfishness, of course not. In consideration, I'd be disappointed. I'm talking about a grand and deep and wide perspective shift in which you spend less of your time begging, cajoling, manipulating, arm twisting, begging other people to consider 
yourself and engage in true love in which you give up all of the perspectives of difference and divisiveness and duplicity against the self, removing the devil and the angel that exist on either side, on either shoulder, that split your mind and say, do I deserve it? Do I not deserve it? Am I loved? Am I not loved? Should I go for it? Should I not go for it? Should I stay? Should I go? And begin to radically assess the benefit, the true benefit that the things and opportunities and lovers that lie before you offer and say yes and say no accordingly. And when it comes time for the accounting and the blame and the bitterness, when people ask you why, you just say, it was about me. And I ask myself, how? How could one have this life view? God, how could you insert this desire now that feels so urgent in me and yet ask me to forego a selfish life? How can I reconcile my life's work of loving other people with a personal revolution of centering myself? And it became very clear when I gave myself that grace, when I centered my own needs, when I began to pursue aggressively a real pursuit of happiness, it drew up a fire in me, a passion for life that I thought had died somewhere along the way. And I began to want that, that room to breathe, that restfulness, that peace of mind, that whimsy, that creativity, that passion. I began to want it more than ever for other people. The deeper that that wellspring goes, the more water it draws out for everyone around it. Truthfully, I was running dry. I was running out, fatigued of compassion and sick of people. I was bitter towards my lovers. I was angry as hell. I was sick of my family. I was exhausted of my friends. Giving away my life, my rest, my money, my happiness. And I thought I was better for it. And so quickly, 25 hit, I ran, ran, ran away and I ran out. No, you gotta, you gotta go for yourself. You gotta go for yourself and find those answers and that love, that love of life, that the wisdom, the passion, the curiosity, the richness, the exhaustion sometimes that comes with laboring for the self. I see now this is the only way that the give and take evens out is if I take everything back for me. And you wonder, you said, Bianca, this was for Valentine's Day. I thought that this was a love story. Honey, this is the greatest love story ever told. And I wish you that kind of journey with all the sweat that it takes and the sweetness it brings. And wherever you are on that journey, I wish you love. I'm Bianca Vivion, and if you ever need anything at all, you can always ask Viv. Oh, oh, oh. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I think I gotta take some time to clear my mind. Cause if I don't, I might